Anyhow, hey, today um, I'm not going to talk about what uh, Blake was going to talk about. He said, I'll send you my notes. I said, no thanks, you go ahead and do your notes. Uh, but I want to talk about leadership. And uh, this is a message, actually, I, I delivered over at the chapel for middle school students and then talked to a different group of younger men uh, a week ago. So I'll be honest, I'm recycling a little bit of material, but I like it. And not because I wrote it, but because it's a story out of the Gospels. And it's a great story. And it's probably truly one of the very few teachings we have of Jesus on the topic of leadership. We as a culture love to talk about leadership. But the truth is, is the Bible talks about servanthood way more than it talks about leadership. The word leadership barely shows up in the New Testament. There's examples of it. But when it comes to the roles and responsibilities of quote-unquote leaders, our contemporary culture has loads to say. And the Bible has different things to say, different angles to say. But this is one of the stories in the Gospels where when you come to the topic of leadership, Jesus weighs in loud and clear and expresses some really good material. And uh, before we get to it, um, what, what would you say is a leader? How would you define, describe what a leader is? Right, yeah, that's right. What do they say? If, uh, if you're a leader, if you say you're a leader and no one's following, you're just going for a walk. You know, someone's willing to follow. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that might be a leader too. That's right. Or a convict. Any other thoughts? Leader. Yeah. Oh, compassionate. Yeah. That's good. Visionary. Someone that can paint a picture and you want to move in with them. Yeah. Yeah. Someone who stands out amongst the crowd, right? Servant's heart. Good. Charlie. Mot- yeah, motivate. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Courage. courage. Yeah. No kidding. It takes courage to lead well. It takes courage to lead poorly. It takes courage. Right? That's right. If you're doing it right, you get blamed if it goes wrong. And on the corollary, if you're a good leader, you also don't take credit when it goes right. You pass around the credit, don't you? I don't know. what uh, A leader that's a male or female, how would you distinguish those things since you brought that up? Do you have some you have some further remarks or are you just trying to Ah uh, That's too funny. That's too Tell you what. That's the best part about being with guys, you know? Cuz you would have never said that if half this room was ladies. But here right here. Well, you might have actually. You know, you get to a certain season in life and you're like, "Man, the heck with it. I'll just say whatever," right? That's when you know you're really living when you don't care what people think of what you're wearing, how you look, and what you say. That's, that's living right there. Might be living lonely, but it's living. Yeah. Well, you know, it is interesting. When you, when you describe today even a leader, you know, it's, it, oftentimes when people are drawn to leadership, it's all the lovely entanglements of leadership, right? It's not... It, it, there, there are people, like every now and then I'll watch, um, when I'm forced to, uh, my family loves to watch like America's Got Talent, or way back in the day we watched that American Idol show where people would sing, and most of the time the people come on stage and they'd ask them some questions and they would always say, you know, I just want to be famous, I want people to know me and my art and whatever. And, uh, and I think to myself, that'd be terrible. You can't go to a store, you know. If you're a famous person, you can't have a, a cup of coffee at Starbucks without paparazzi chasing you around. I mean, that would be, to me, to be famous would be awful. But a lot of people, they're like, I want to be important. 
I want people to know my name. You know, I, I want, uh, there's a new term, or it's a relatively new term, to be an influencer. Whatever that means. That sounds dumb, but it is a real term that gets thrown around, that a, that a leader is an influencer. Or, um, you know, it, sometimes the, the standout person, as, you might, as it was remarked, as, as, you know, a person that's got some remarkable talent to them. And, uh, and so, you know, when you think about the term leadership, the next question is, how do I get there, right? And historically, there's been two pathways to leadership. One is an old term called nepotism, which just is connections. And uh, I've never known enough important people in life to milk connections. So that nepotism's never worked in my favor. Some of you might have been uh, favored sons or inherited things or whatever. My dad was a shop worker, so I, you know, I, there wasn't a whole lot my dad was going to be able to do for me except put me through college, which he graciously did. But uh, there's, there's that. There's connections. And don't you, unless you've been in a position of leadership because of it, don't you secretly, deep down inside, just hate those people? I mean, universally, isn't there a certain part, like, my, my family's making me watch, like I'm the victim of this thing, but a, a, a Netflix mo- a TV series called The Crown and it's about the British royalty. And, and it's somewhere in every episode I bring up to my family, didn't we fight a war back in the 1700s so I don't have to care what these people do? And the whole time I'm watching this show, I'm thinking, I just defund the whole group of them. I don't, what do I care about British royals? They don't do anything near as I can tell except be paparazzi bait. I mean, they don't seem to, I don't mean any disrespect to them. I don't, but I'm like, they don't really carry the hefty weight of leadership, but, but they just inherit it by birthright. Maybe I'm just jealous. Maybe I think I would do that prince thing way better, because I would. But there's the other way you climb the ranks, and that is through talent and hard work, right? And some of you know what that's about. Well, the story in the Bible is about guys that were trying to use the former. They were trying to use nepotistic connections. And uh, the story is found in the 20th chapter of Matthew uh, first Gospel, New Testament, Matthew 20. And uh, the story is this beautiful story of James and John. They're just identified as the sons of Zebedee, but we know that the sons of Zebedee are James and John. And what's also interesting is if you, if you track down one of the characters that we're about to introduce, she's not named, she's just identified as James and John's mother. But if you, and I won't take you through the, the tour of the Bible, I can send you the link if you're interested. But very, very likely, James and John's mother is the sister or a near relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus, most likely. And the way we know this is from other gospel accounts when names of women are listed and relationships are identified. Most likely, James and John are cousins, first cousins, maybe second cousins of Jesus. And so here's the story of nepotism almost in action. It says here that... um, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons. So just picture the scene. Jesus, they're doing something, and there's uh, mommy. We're going to call her mommy because if you're a grown man asking your mother for favor, she's your mommy, not your mother. And so mommy is in front, and the boys are kind of behind mommy. And they've got kind of grins on their face, leaning in, hoping. They're listening to this. And so... Their mommy comes and she kneels before Jesus 
and asks a favor of him. And Jesus says, what is it you want? Because it's pretty obvious you want something because you've just kneeled in front of me. She said, grant that these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. Now, isn't it a beautiful picture? Uh, uh, this, the same story is recorded by Mark and Luke, but Mark and Luke drop off the part that mom did the asking. And different scholars, and this is not unusual, Matthew is the longest of the gospel, so there's some details in Matthew that the others don't record. It doesn't mean it didn't happen, it just means that just like if three of us saw an accident, we would all describe the thing differently from our own point of view. So Matthew, what's funny is scholars are like, why did Matthew put that in there? And some scholars have said, well, Matthew, who's probably, you know, he wrote his gospel, it seems, the last. Uh, I mean, not, not, not John was probably the last, but it probably went Mark and then Luke and then Matthew, probably. So this is what they think. So maybe Matthew was trying to soften how bad this made James and John look. Out of respect for James and John, he puts the request in the voice of their mother. And I think, I think it makes them look worse. I mean, I'd have a little more respect if they came up, because that's what in Mark and Luke it says. They come up to Jesus and go, hey, hey, in your kingdom, can we? But in Matthew, it's mom. So it's almost a humorous thing. We're so used to reading the Bible with no humor. We're like, this is serious stuff. It's the Bible. No, it actually is funny. It, it's actually, I don't care who you are. It's funny when you're, you're a grown man and you're asking mommy to ask the boss for a favor. It's humorous. It may not be like fall off your seat funny, but think about it for a minute. It's funny. Okay, trust me on that. You're not laughing, but it is funny. Uh, so, uh, so I love this, but rather than answer mommy, Jesus just looks past her. She's on her knees or whatever, and he says, you don't know what you're asking. He said to them. He doesn't say it to, to, to the mom. Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Now, they immediately like, absolutely, yes, 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 we can. Um, it reminds me of a friend of mine uh, when he had, he and his newlywed bride, this is like 40 years ago, they had moved into, they were brand new married, and they had moved into a trailer park on the outskirts of town. And Ed told me the story that um, uh, he was just scraping to make ends meet, hence living in the trailer park. And, uh, and uh, one day he saw a bulldozer out on the edge of the mobile home property. And so Ed went out to talk to the, man, the owner of the mobile home park and said, what's going on here? And the guy goes, well, we're going to add on. And, um, and so Ed always is a hustler and trying to make a buck. And so Ed goes, well, well what are you going to do with the bulldozer? He goes, well, I'm going to you know, plow up, make some streets and stuff so the trailer park, can you drive one of these? Ed never sat on a bulldozer before. But like any good man, when the guy said, can you, he didn't say, did you know how to? He said, can you? Ed goes, absolutely. And so the guy goes, well, how about this? You carve up the roads and I'll knock off like six months of your rent or whatever it was. And Ed goes, I can let, that sounds like a great idea. So Ed hops up and he goes, you know, I've never driven this one. Can you show me how to fire it up? So he got the tutorial from the guy, and for the next month or whatever, he's carving up to make this mobile home park. Anyhow, I share that because that's like typical to a guy. Without knowing what he's getting himself into, he's like, yes, 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 I can. They have no idea what they're getting themselves into. When Jesus says, can you drink from my cup, they hear victory cup. They picture like the trophy champagne 
Everyone has, they've just won the big battle and they're tipping back. So their thing is, can we handle victory well? Yes, we can. What they don't know is Jesus' cup is a cup of suffering. It's going to involve hardship and difficulty. So when they're like, yes, they didn't, they didn't really know what they were getting into. And Jesus' response to them, I love his response, because there had to be a, just a little smirk, like when they're like, we can. He's like, well, you indeed will drink from my cup. He knew. Jo- James will be dead within a year. James will be the first Christian martyr. He will drink from the cup. John lives a very long time, but it is not a pleasant life, and he does not retire with a lot of dignity. It's a tough, tough life. But he says, Jesus says, you're going to drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or to sit at my left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those to whom has been prepared by my Father. And some people suggest, uh, some scholars, and it seems plausible, that when he talks about who's going to be at my right and my left and as I enter my kingdom, is the thieves on either side of Jesus. One will be to his right and one will be to his left. So some scholars are like, what, who God has prepared to be, they're like, can we be with you when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus is like, you have no idea what you're asking. I'm going to come into my kingdom through crucifixion. <laughs> That's not a ride you want to be on. So I love that he's honest. This is something, this tells you something about Jesus. He's honest. When they're like, we can take the cup, we can do it. He is honest. He's like, you will get it. Yeah. And I wonder if there's a little part, a lump in the throat, and maybe a little smirk, like you really don't know what you're asking. You just requested to suffer, but you are going to suffer because you're going to be faithful, and it's not going to be easy. But you're not going to be on my right and left, because that's going to be two thieves right now being prepared for crucifixion. And so, uh, this is, but this is where it gets even better. Um, how many of you have siblings? You know, you go back to your childhood, you remember? And uh, there was a piece of apple pie, one piece left. And uh, your sibling was the first person to ask for it and receive it. And now there's no pie left. How many of you, when that happened, or chocolate cake or whatever, how many of you are like, I'm so glad they got it. I would have gladly given it to them. I don't care if you're 8 or 80. That never feels good unless you're the one that gets the last piece, right? And this is what happens. It says, uh, it says when the 10 heard about this, because they're not too far off, they were indignant with the two brothers. Now, indignant is a beautiful way of, 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 of saying in their selfish heart of hearts, they thought, ah, I should have asked first. Not like righteous indignation, like you see some great moral offense and you become indignant over the moral offense. They're not like, how selfish of John and James. They're like, oh, I should have thought of that first. They're boxing me out. I can't believe it. And so they become indignant. And here's the teachable moment. I told you Jesus is going to tell something about leadership, and this is going to be really an encapsulating segment. He says this, verse 25, Jesus calls them together. And, I, and I, this is how Jesus teaches. He teaches as he's kind of going along. And he pulls them together, and he says, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles, which is the world, outside the household family of faith, they lord it over them. In other words, they... They exercise this power, right? And their high officials, the other like wannabes next to them, exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what Jesus does is uh, something he often does in his teaching. He'll contrast. He'll be like, here's how some people live. Don't do that. Here's how I'm calling you to live. Do, do this. So uh, just on that section there, as you look through it, what do you observe? What do you see are the bad ways, the unhealthy ways to lead? That a follower of Christ is not to, to lead that way. What do you see? Dictatorship, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, some people run dictatorships in their home. Some people run dictatorships in their businesses. I mean, there are, it's always easy to be like, and there's the dictator in South America. Well, sure, but there's dictators... There are a lot of people would be would be dictators if they could be dictators. It actually, was if if you're new to the Church God movement, Anderson movement, that used to be one of the sort of like ordinances of. And in some Church of God Anderson churches spread across the country, they still they still do that. So it's nice. Com- comment was on washing a feet, and it's it's almost easier to wash someone else's feet. To have someone wash your feet doesn't feel quite right. I agree. Yeah. No, I totally understand that. Any other observations from this text? You, you look through it and you go, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like the worldly who lorded over you know, what do you? Is there anything else you see in that? Isn't that interesting that part, part of the, that it just seems built into some people's mindset on leadership is that if I'm a leader, I, I look down on other people. And I, I know, like, there's, the, you think about, go back to your, your youth or maybe certain eras of your career. There were always those people that you were chums with, good friends with, right? And then they would get some sort of promotion, uh, quarterback position on the team, or, or they were elevated in the company. And the really good ones were still your friend, right? But there were always those punks that, they like were too good for you, right? They traded in. They traded up a whole friend group. And I, I mean, and some of us actually, when we look back, we're like, I'm that punk. I'm the jerk that did that. And that, but that's, that's part of the world, though. That's not, that, it's easier to go, oh, people do that. No, we're the people who do that. And so, you know, I, I look through it. I, I kind of go, there's, you know, I would think of the three Ps, if you will, if you like to take notes, you can write down the three P's if you want to. You don't have to. But these are, to me, the wrong ideas of leadership that Jesus highlights. Prestige, power, and perks. There's the prestige that comes with it. That when I enter a room, everybody's quiet. That they, they, uh, they defer to me at the table when I have something to say. That, that they, uh, they make way. That the prestige is uh, that other people speak my name in front of other people, all prestige kind of things. And it feels good, sometimes too good. But the world, that, that's a driver. Like, why do I want to be a leader? So that I have people really admire me. Not so that I can, like, do the work that I'm called to do, but so other people are like, wow, great at the work he's doing. There's the power bit. I can bully people around. I can push my way into things. I can just end a conversation like that. I can tell people what I think, and they can't tell me what they think. 
That's always when you know you have a power differential, when, when someone is not free to speak their mind. In fact, that's one of the hard parts if you grow in a leadership role, is getting subordinates to be honest. It's actually one of the, the most perilous parts of leadership, is if you're trying to do it right, a lot of subordinates won't tell you what's really going on. Because part of it is, is when they do tell you, it hurts a little bit at times, and you have to not play whack-a-mole with them. And if you play whack-a-mole, which normal people do, they won't tell you anything anymore, and now you're in a real perilous position. And uh, history is replete with examples of people who had that. You know, I love, I'm sure you, some of you guys echo this too, I love uh, military history, Second World War history, and, and you, pick, you, know, you pick the person, uh, the one that's always easiest to point out is uh, you know, the, the little guy in Germany is... Uh, you know, he was finally, towards the last couple of years, just surrounded by sycophants who just told him, everything's going great, everything's going great. Because anybody who told him what was really going on, he exiled or killed. So after a while, you know, everything's great down in the bunker. Yeah, we're about to be redeemed by, you know, whatever. Power is a dangerous thing. And then perks, you know, the corner office, the extra pay, the nicer cars, the, the whole thing. And Jesus says, not so with you. This is not to be the driver. When you think of leadership, not so with you. Now, a question is, why not? And, and sometimes what we do when we come into stuff like this, we're like, well, mainly because God likes to take away fun things. <laughs> no, I mean, really. I mean, seriously, don't. I mean, there's a certain degree where it's, it's like, oh, man. I mean, if we were honest, if nobody, uh, no other religious people were around, they're like, yeah, it is kind of a bummer. God says, don't do that, because it is a lot of fun. I mean, truth be told. But if we, if we think logically, again, the problem with these three is they, they don't feed anything in you. They are bottomless pits. Can you ever have enough prestige? Can you ever have enough power? Can you ever have enough perks? Can you? And we all know the answer. The answer, I, I was talking with a young man called up, and he's, he's struggling with, uh, with pornography. Talking to, and this is common. I mean, it's common for men, young and old. And, and, uh, and I told him, I said, man, it's good that you've identified this as a young man, because this is a man's fight for his whole life. Because as a man, you can never look at enough naked pictures. Am I wrong? Can you ever look at enough? I'm satisfied. No, there's something weird, hard-built in a man. And if you allow that, if you allow yourself to go down that black hole, it will suck the joy and life out of real things from you. You're, you're done. And, and, uh, and I, I'm sure this is a, a diverse and mature group of men. I don't need to tell that. I'm, I'm preaching to knowledgeable men on the subject. And, and so the problem when Jesus says, don't be like the Gentiles. They, they just do this for position and perks and power and all this other stuff. Don't be like them. Not so with you. Don't be driven by that because it's not good for you. It won't help you. It won't actually give you anything. If you only do it for those things, it's vacant. You move into the corner office and you're like, it's not big enough. You could have the whole floor and it's not big enough. You could have everything. It's not big enough or good enough or most or beautiful enough. There is no end in it. There is no end in sight for it. And so what Jesus says is um, there's another way. 
There's another way to lead. And this is a great way to see the world. Um, one is a service to others. To see my life is a service to others. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. In other words, a person who sees that the, their duty, their responsibility is a service to others. You've been to a restaurant, right? You've been there when you've had great service, and you've been there when you've had lousy service, right? You've been there when, when that waiter or waitress keeps your coffee cup full. It's like just, just when you're like halfway, they come and they, can I warm it up for you? And you're thinking, you're going to get a nice dip, right? The food comes piping hot. Because they know that the only, their job is to serve that table. They're not there to talk to the... Now, now, we've all been to the restaurant where I'm pretty sure the wait staff thinks their job is to hang out with their other wait staff friends over near like the drink machine, catch up with each other, and hop on Instagram. Because you know because your drink's always either cold or empty, and uh, your food drives cold, right? And that, that's bad service. The server who goes, I'm here to serve this table, is a great server. And the Lord says, live your life that way. You're waiting tables. Do it with a cheerful heart. And then there's also this um, surrender to God. He says, uh, whoever wants to be first must be your slave. How many of you like that word? <laughs> oh, I mean, that's... And if we were like, well, that word back in the first century was an easier pill for them to swallow. They had slavery. No, it wasn't. No one liked it. Sometimes we tell these stories. Oh, in the first century, slavery was a lot better than it was, for instance, in Georgia, in you know, antebellum uh, south. Well, yeah, okay, some, but it's never a pleasure to be owned by another human being. That's not joy-filled. That's crummy. It's rough. So when Jesus says, um, whoever, wants to be, whoever wants to be first must be your slave, what he's getting at here is a slave finds their identity, their ownership, in someone else. So this is a perspective that we can take, that we're not our own, that we're the Lord's. That I'm, I'm, in fact, that's one of Paul's favorite ways to describe himself, is a, is a doulos, is a slave or a servant of the Lord Most High. This is like a big word in Greek, it's doulos. Uh, there's a couple different words for slave, and some of them have really rugged meaning, and Paul uses them all on himself. He's like, this is the, this is the heartbeat of a Christian person, is to say, I am not first and foremost uh, my own. I'm not owned by myself. I'm not owned by the company. I'm not owned by the political party. I'm not owned by my racial identity. I'm not owned by my gender. I'm not owned by all the things my culture tells me I'm to be owned by. I'm not owned by being an executive or being middle or working class or, or struggling to make ends meet. Or I'm not owned by, my, by being a business owner. I'm not owned by those labels. I'm owned by the Lord Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. That's who I'm owned by. And if I see that, I mean, that, that's, that's a big change in how I approach leadership. Because now I'm not representing myself, I'm representing God. And then finally he says uh, this selfless motivation is that just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And it, it, he, he's like, at least be like me. Which that came into crystal clarity after the crucifixion, right? Up till then, people are like, okay, you're here. But later, when the gospel writers were codifying this in book form, they were like, 
that's what he meant. He meant he came to die for us. So because Jesus himself came not to be served, and sometimes we're like, hey, I have the right to be served. And none of us have the right compared to Jesus. Jesus had, when he shows back up again, the, the Bible says every knee will bow. Even if they don't want to bow, they're like, I got to bow. You know, I, sometimes I imagine how he's coming back. And I, look, I yearn for that, especially as I get older, I really yearn for it. When I was young, I did, wasn't in a hurry. But now I'm, I'm like, bring him back. It'd be great. This would be a good year. I didn't put enough aside for retirement. So come on. Come on back. But, but when he comes back again, but, but he said, I, I didn't come to, to have humanity wait on me. I came to redeem humanity. Now, if Jesus is willing to take that posture, then we're a bunch of dirtbags. You know, I mean, truly, you know, we're, we, who are we? We, we are to follow his example. And so, uh, you know, you, you take that. It, um, many of you, I'm sure, in this room at some point had read the, the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, you know, ri- written uh, way back in the 1930s. It's one of the best-selling books. And uh, it got some criticism. People are like, well, it's just how to manipulate people. But if you read the book, the author is very clear, 100% clear. If you try to use this book to manipulate, it will not work. No, in fact, the, the best way to win friends and influence people, to lead them, is to show genuine concern and interest in them, to ask them questions about themselves, to figure out what they need and how you might help them in their need. That's how you do it. That's what the author of that book said all that time. And, and uh, when I read it, I remember thinking, this guy ripped off Jesus. I mean, he should have at least given props to the Lord over this one. Because this is, this is key to the idea of Christian leadership. That's pretty revolutionary, isn't it? I mean, that's a very different... Now, for all of us in the church, we're like, eh, I've heard it before. It's really revolutionary when you consider how the world leads and how a Christian is called to lead. So with that, I'm going to hit pause. Any comments or questions or smart remarks? Leadership, the danger is, is it offers a corruption that followership doesn't always offer. We can, as a follower, you can sit and complain and whine. As a leader... There's, there are some pathways there within leadership, and we've all seen them, right? We all know. So, any other thoughts? All right. Well, I've taken you past your normal lot of time, I think. I uh, apologize for that. But uh, let me pray for us, and, uh, and then I'll send you on your merry way. Uh, Father, it, is, it has been good to open up your word and uh, to, to study this important topic that is uh, so intriguing in our world today and interesting to the people of our world. But Lord, more than anything, help us to be redeemed vessels that you have, you have filled with your Spirit as redeemed men to uh, be role models and examples of Christ-likeness. And this world makes that very hard, and our own sin nature makes that very hard. But by your grace, Lord, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, we'd be different men that people would see you shining through. And so, uh, in turbulent times, help us, wherever we're at, to be spreaders of peace and to be representatives of your love. And we pray this in Christ's name. And all the men said, Amen. Amen. Good to be with you guys. Have a great day.